We're going to be in John chapter 8 today, if you want to turn there in your Bible. And we've been going through big picture themes in John. We talked about how there's seven powerful I am statements that Jesus makes. There are seven uh, prolonged in kind of personal conversations that Jesus has with different people. There are seven women that John lifts up and highlights who have encounters with Jesus, conversations with him. Uh, just a lot that we've been looking at. And today's text is, is one that uh, is in italics in your Bible. It isn't included in some Bibles, and I want to talk about that. Um, it's not part of the original manuscript of the Gospel of John. Most people, most scholars today believe that because it's not found in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. But, um, and so because of that, some people view it as not that it shouldn't be included as inspired and errant scripture. They argue that the style and the vocabulary of our passage today differs from the rest of the gospel. They also argue that the flow from the end of chapter 7 into chapter 8 gets broken up by this passage. And so they conclude that it's probably oral tradition that is recorded. What do we mean by oral tradition? We mean that it was something that actually happened in the life and ministry of Jesus, but that it was passed down through word of mouth. And so that's what a number of people believe. Others argue that the story fits perfectly here. It doesn't break the flow at all. In fact, the development of the rest of the entire chapter of chapter 8 really flows from this event in the temple. Jesus' declaration about being the light of the world in chapter 8, verse 12, certainly fits, as well as his words about true and false judgment, and uh, true and false judgment in verse 15 and 16 of chapter 18 seem to flow right out of this story as well. The repeated phrase about dying in your sins that we're going to read in chapter 8, verse 21 and 24, seem to clearly relate to this woman and, and the judgment that was surrounding her. Um, as well as the fact that chapter 8 ends with another attempt to stone Jesus. And chapter 8 begins with this attempt to stone this woman. And so it, it is very much a, a fitting transitional story um, connecting uh, the two chapters together. So because of all these arguments, many people believe that this is part of Scripture. It's just in a wrong place. It's a fragment of authentic Scripture, as scholar F.F. F. Bruce says, regardless of where we today because I think it represents um, another significant encounter in Christ's ministry. And as we've talked about before, the two rules that we have, number one, that it doesn't contradict other scripture. So scripture is all, always our standard, our guide. If we consider anything, read anything that contradicts scripture, then we discard it. And secondly, that it doesn't add new theology. Um, and so because of those reasons, we are addressing it and looking at it today. I want to paint the picture, though. As I am uh, getting ready to speak today and talk, picture the, the same that we're going to read is true of Jesus. He's in the temple. We're going to read about this. And as he begins speaking in a, in a situation, a setting like this, imagine as I'm talking right now, the leaders of our church drag a naked woman up here in front of you all, a woman who has just been caught in the very act of adultery. The text doesn't say she's unclothed, but it says repeatedly that she was caught in the very act. 
Now, some of you are, you know, shocked and, you know, you're thinking, what an inappropriate place to drag somebody. But the leaders are exposing her in front of everyone and they are demanding that she be stoned. Some of you are thinking, where's the guy? Why is it just her? Why is she being singled out? There's a lot of questions swirling through your mind. But this is really the scene that Jesus encountered and that the crowds experienced as Jesus was teaching in the temple. And so I want to read our passage for us. We're going to start in chapter 7, verse 53. It says, Then the meeting broke up and everybody went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So this is talking about the feast that they had celebrated, the Feast of Booze, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, where Jesus said, I am the living water. If anybody uh, comes to me, they will have living water eternally. After they had gone to the Pool of Siloam for seven days and filled up the jugs and came back and poured them over the altar, Jesus announced that on the seventh day. And then after this situation, um, remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the rulers had tried to have Jesus arrested, and so they sent the guards out, and the guards came back empty-handed. And remember, they said, where, where is he? Why didn't you arrest him? And they said, never have we heard of anyone speak like he speaks with such authority, which was really a dig on them, because the, these rulers spoke all the time, but apparently it wasn't with authority. And so they're kind of getting this put down. So as we're going to see in our passage today, this is really the ruler's second attempt to try and arrest Jesus and trip him up. But everybody goes home to their home, which highlights the sad note that we read so often in the Gospels, that foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus really had no permanent residence in his time here on earth, uh, apart from where he grew up with Mary and Joseph. As an adult, he, he stayed in different homes and he traveled about. And Luke chapter 21 tells us that in these final days and weeks of his life, he would preach during the day in the temple, and then he would literally spend the night out on the Mount of Olives because he was, he was trying to get out away from danger and away from um, kind of the exposure to the people and the authorities. And remember that he's orchestrating his death. He is healing, he is doing good things, he's casting out demons, he's preaching about the kingdom, but he is also timing his death until the very moment where he yields up his spirit to God. Uh, A phenomenal thing that he's in control of, uh, even in his humanity. Verse 2, early in the morning, he came again to the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. Again, Luke 21 says, all the people will get up early every morning to come to hear him in the temple and listen to him. So this is exactly what's happening. And the, the rulers see this as another opportunity to seize him and, and trip him up and, and expose him before the Romans. Verse 4, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the middle or the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, This woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses, he commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? Verse 6 says, And they were saying this, testing him, to trap him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. I want to read you the words of Deuteronomy. If you want to turn there, you're welcome to. Deuteronomy chapter 17 really is one of the best records 
of the law that they're citing and quoting. And I want you to hear firsthand the, the law that this is based on. Deuteronomy 17, we're going to begin in verse 2, and then we'll read verses 4 to 10. <coughs> Deuteronomy 17, verse 2. When you begin living in the towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman among you might do evil in the sight of the Lord your God and violate the covenant. Verse 4, when you hear about it, investigate the matter thoroughly. If it is true that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then the man or woman who has committed such an evil act must be taken to the gates of the town and stoned to death. But never put a person to death on the testimony of only one witness. There must always be two or three witnesses. We've talked about that many times, that in Scripture, a, a word or testimony or fact was always confirmed in the presence of two or three witnesses. Verse 7, the witnesses must throw the first stones, and then all the people may join in. In this way, you will purge the evil from among you. Suppose a case arises in a local court that is too hard for you to decide. For instance, whether someone is guilty of murder or only of manslaughter or a difficult lawsuit or a case involving different kinds of assault. Take such legal cases to the place the Lord your God will choose and present them to the Levitical priests or the judge on duty at the time. They will hear the case and declare the verdict. You must carry out the verdict they announce and the sentence they prescribe at the place the Lord chooses. You must do exactly what they say. So let's take a moment and just kind of glean and, and, and reflect on what we just read. Any matter uh, that required a decision or a ruling, one witness was not sufficient. It took at least a minimum of two or three witnesses in every situation, and that's what this law stipulates. Also, this law stipulated that both the man and the woman were to be stoned. Both were equally um, responsible for the crime and had to be punished. The third thing we read is that the witnesses were responsible for beginning the stoning. The witnesses would start, and then the others would join in. So the witnesses had a responsibility if they viewed this, that they were the first ones to throw the stones. We also read that difficult decisions were to be brought before the Levitical priest or judge, which is ironic that these leaders really don't care about the woman. I don't really think they care whether or not she gets stoned. All they want to do is they want to trap Jesus in his words. But they're coming, in essence, acknowledging him as the priest and as the judge who will make the decision, which is just the hypocrisy of that just screams so loudly. And then the final thing that we read is that Jesus' words as this Levitical priest or judge are the final say-so. It's the ultimate ruling and authority, and they have to follow whatever he says to the T. So... Here's what you need to understand is that adultery in the Jewish law had to do with unfaithfulness between wives and husbands. It didn't have to do with unfaithfulness between married men and single women, ironically. So very inconsistent. And you see this in the temple prostitutes. 
how many times men would go to worship at pagan sites and engage in sexual activity with temple prostitutes. And that wasn't adultery. That, that wasn't judged. That wasn't ruled upon. There was no punishment or consequence for that. So, although that didn't reflect God's intent, very inconsistent in the practice and how they view this. The other thing also was that adultery wasn't a capital offense under Roman law. And on top of this, historians tell us that around 30 AD, the Roman government took away the power from the Sanhedrin. Remember the Sanhedrin were the 70 top Pharisees in Jesus' day who basically were the Supreme Court. They took away their right to enforce capital punishment. So that's why later on we have the Jewish authorities bringing Jesus on trial before Pilate and Caiaphas because they don't have the power to crucify him themselves. They don't have the power to enforce that. So what are they doing here? They're trying to force Jesus' hand. Either he enforces the Mosaic law and stones this woman or orders that she should be stoned, and he loses popularity and favor with the people, but at the same time he gets in trouble with the Roman government for doing something you know, he can't win here, according to them. They think, perfect. We're too coward to do this ourselves and seize Jesus and do anything to him for fear of what the crowd may say. So we're going to get him to act in a way where he either loses favor with the people or the Romans do for us what we're not able to do ourselves. Kind of masterful in terms of what um, they're thinking. But as we are going to watch her, Jesus turns the whole thing upside down and turns the responsibility back on them, which is pretty ingenious here. I, I don't think these leaders had any intentions of stoning this woman. They only wanted to force Jesus' hand. And how ironic that they come to him for this ruling, acknowledging his position of authority in, in handing down this verdict. Well, Jesus stoops down on the ground, uh, down to the ground, with his finger and wrote on the ground. And the question is, what did he write in the sand? And why did he write twice? One of the questions that we often ask of this passage. Uh, whatever Jesus wrote, in many ways, is inconsequential because they didn't really care about the facts. Even if he had written down the law, uh, they weren't really caring what the law said. They were just opportunists looking for an opportunity to expose him. He could have reminded them of the law and their responsibility as witnesses to cast the first stones. Possibly he could have asked them, where's the guy? Where, where, where's the other man involved in this? Which they would have blown off as well. But the man was equally guilty of death. They could have asked, he could have been asking, are, are you acknowledging my authority as a, as a rabbi, as a priest, in this situation, by coming to me, are you, are you acknowledging that I, in fact, have, and they would have blown that off and said no. You know, uh, there's many things he could have written. Verse 7, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, Jesus is not saying that any of us has to be morally perfect in order to execute discipline or judgment. Uh, many have seen uh, kind of a, a libertine Jesus here who's just kind of saying, hey, 
do anything you want, which is certainly not the case. God has given instruction within his law, within scripture, about how discipline is to be carried out. And it certainly doesn't require that those who carry it out are sinless. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's basically saying, it's your responsibility as witnesses to cast the first stone, according to Deuteronomy 17 that we just read. And why don't we start with the one who has no sin, which is an interesting way to put it. But the leaders keep pressing him for an answer, and and Jesus is throwing it back on them. Um, If you really think about it, an offense of this nature, how unusual it would be for there to be any witnesses. We don't often think about that, but it's not every day that you are witnessing adultery taking place, unless perhaps you have planned the whole situation in order to trap Jesus. And if that's the case, they are equally responsible for having witnessed this. They are, they are they're, they're taking part in it. They are condoning it in a sense in, in their efforts to exploit Jesus and to manipulate him. So uh, it's exposing them as well in, in this whole process. Um, verse 8, again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, there's many rabbinical schools of thought on what he wrote the second time. And uh, the Friday morning men's group that meets in the back here, the, the rabbinical school of Al Bruckner, believes <laughs> that Jesus may, may have just written down first names, you know, like uh, Jim. And it was going to be followed by the list of all Jim's sins. And before Jesus could be, he's like, I'm out, I'm gone, you know. And then maybe it was Bob, and Bob's like, oh, no, you don't have to write him down. You got me. Like, all Jesus had to write was a name to be followed by the sins that they were responsible for, and people just scurried out of there. That's one uh, school of thought. The other rabbinical school of Joe Dilbeck believes that (laughs) perhaps there was a tradition that the witnesses who were responsible for the stoning were to do and carry out the stoning according to their age, beginning with the elders, going all the way down to the youngest. And that is perhaps why they, they left in order of descending age. We can't find that anywhere in Scripture, but that fits uh, many other traditions and customs where things were done, done according to age and the elders were respected. I, I personally wonder if Jesus, as he stooped down that second time to write, was reminding them of his words on the Sermon of the Mount, where he said, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then kind of looked at like, okay, you've brought this naked woman before me, and the whole time you've been trying to judge her, you guys seem to be getting an eyeful here, you know. So how many of you are, are not guilty of committing adultery in your heart with her? I, I've used the illustration before. It's kind of like, a teacher that catches a student with pornography. And so he's marching that student to the principal's office, and all the while he's looking at the material because he wants to be very informed on what it is that, you know, <laughs> what, what hypocrisy, you know, that, that these, these men are engaging in and bringing this woman before Jesus. Many, many different uh, options and thoughts here. Verse 9, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. 
and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Time after time in the Gospels, we see plots to trap Jesus, to ensnare him, to manipulate him, to exploit him. And it always results in the embarrassment of his accusers. Jesus' response consistently draws them into accountability and unexpectedly shifts the focus back on them and away from him. Just masterful how many times he does this and the ways that he does it. Sadly, the woman's accusers were more interested in destroying Jesus than they were in saving her. They had such vicious hatred for him that she was just a a pawn or a tool in their hand. And that that speaks so poorly of the religious leaders of the day who should have been the shepherds and and the pastors of this community, that they were just looking for an opportunity. One commentator wisely summed it up this way. He said, the trap failed to catch the one for whom it was laid, yet it caught those who laid it. And how often that is the case, that we're, we're laying traps for others and we get ensnared in our own trap. That is certainly what happens here. Verse 10, straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, my Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. Notice that Jesus doesn't pronounce pardon here. He he doesn't say as he does other places in the gospels, "Your, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. He simply says, neither do I condemn you. And he is certainly not saying that she has done nothing that's condemnable because she has. He's simply offering her a break from her sinful past and an opportunity to move forward in newness of life. And I love how that's expressed so beautifully in Romans chapter 6 by the Apostle Paul. He says, as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, so also we are to walk in newness of life. The purpose of God reaching us and redeeming us and saving us is that we might live for Him and and not engage in the the sins and the deeds that we used to be a part of. Um, the, The New Testament also puts it in other ways that, you know, do you not know that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. God did not purchase us and redeem us so that we could just do anything that we want. As Paul says, we are not to sin that grace may abound, because the book of Hebrews says that if we do that, we are really re-crucifying him and exposing him to open shame. But we have been purchased for a price that we might glorify God. So I want to draw some application and... um, We're going to end earlier today, so if anybody that's keeping an eye on the worship team, you might wrangle them up as they're out there partying before they come back. (laughs) One of the applications I thought was, you know, sometimes in our blind pursuit of something, we are unable to see the hypocrisy of our own actions. We get so focused on something, achieving something, um, making something happen that we don't even look at the consistency and the hypocrisy of our own actions. Another thought is, how often do we use other people, manipulate others to achieve what it is that we want, our own purposes, our own schemes? And do we even care about the people that we're using? Another application is, how 
can we ourselves balance a life of grace and truth? Not erring on, the, on either side, but balancing that in our lives. And as I was reflecting upon all of these applications, I thought, you know, these are all worthy applications of the text. They're all good, but they fall short. And the reason why they fall short is because it kind of puts each one of us in the position of judge. You know, as we are the rulers in this case too, and we need to learn how to exercise grace and truth. We're the ones that need not exploit others for our own personal benefit or be so blinded uh, in what we're trying to achieve that we don't see our own hypocrisy. And it suddenly hit me, I am this woman. You are this woman. We have been exposed. Our sin has been revealed. I I, I can't imagine a more uh, horrific environment than in front of a, a temple of worshipers, a congregation of people that have come to church to have our sins exposed. But we are the ones that have been exposed. And the very one who has every right to throw the first stone, the one who is truly without sin, is more interested in saving us than he is condemning us. And when's the last time that we allowed that to sink in? Both the fact that we are desperately in need of a Savior, and thank God the one who is in charge of judgment, ultimate judgment, is more interested in saving us than he is in condemning us. That's that's the message of the New Testament. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Very next verse. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. 2 Peter 3.9. God is not slow in keeping his promise as some count slowness, but God is patient, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. When's the last time we thank God that he is patient, that he is merciful, that although he has every right to condemn us, to punish us eternally, that that is not his heart. And that is why he sent Jesus. That's why he provided a way. I love what God communicates in the Old Testament through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. God says, come now and let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Also God's words in Deuteronomy chapter 30 to the Israelites, today I have given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and cursings. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Notice the testimony of two or three witnesses, heaven and earth, this whole celestial, cosmic, universal court of witnesses. I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice that you make. Now hear the heart of God here. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. You hear the heart of God here? Not, I can't wait to just, you know, throw the book at you and lock you up or punish you, but oh, that you would choose life that you and your descendants might live. Verse 20, You can make this choice by loving the Lord your God and obeying Him and committing yourself firmly to Him. He is the key to your life. And if you love and obey the Lord, you will live long in the land the Lord 
your God swore to give you and your, your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're going to move into a time of prayer now. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. But I, I, was, uh, I was at a memorial service yesterday for a friend that I grew up with. My age, just got cancer, just passed away. It was a pretty sobering time. And um, our former youth pastor did the, the service. And what I loved is the constant opportunity to hear the gospel and receive the Lord. And I feel like this is where this ends today, is that if you're here today and you recognize your need, if you see that you are in fact this woman that has been exposed, I am in fact this woman that's been exposed, that we are sinful people in need of a, of a Savior. And if you have never acknowledged that before God and said, I can't give myself eternal life, I can't pay for the consequences of my sin, this is your opportunity to receive what God has offered through Jesus. It's a gift of grace, not of works. It's not something we boast about. It's, it's something that Jesus has already accomplished for you and for me on the cross by taking our place and, and paying for our sin. And so I'm going to pray right now, and I'm going to invite you to join me in this prayer. If you've never prayed this, perhaps you've prayed it before and you want to repeat it again. But Father God, we acknowledge before you that we are sinful people. We have continually gone against your will and your word and, and broken your commandments and your, your laws. And we admit, God, that we need someone to pay for our sin, somebody that can be the perfect representative for us. And Scripture says that that's Jesus, that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to you except through him. If that were not true, how foolish of him to give his life on the cross if many paths lead to you. But Scripture says, no, there is only one path to you, and that is through Jesus, and it's through his sacrifice. And we either receive what he has done for us, or we don't. And Father God, there may be some here this morning that have never received that and never reached out and made that their own. And our prayer is that they would do that, that they would find new life in you, that they would find forgiveness, that they would find freedom and mercy and grace that you offer. Because Christianity is not about what we do to earn your favor. It's about what Jesus has already done on our behalf. And we accept that. And Lord God, we thank you that you have chosen us, you have redeemed us in order that we might live for you. And the message today is not just don't worry about what we've done, it's all good. The message is go and sin no more. And Lord God, there are many of us here that already know you. And yet, we are failing to live in your resurrection power. We're failing to live a life that honors you and glorifies you. We're failing to, to seize our, our, our responsibility to be representatives of, and ambassadors of you who proclaim your kingdom message to those around us. And God, Easter is quickly approaching. And it's the time of year when every eye and every heart is turned uh, towards you, and you're in the spotlight. And God, may we take advantage of the fact that there are people all around us who desperately need to hear of the life that you offer, and we can share that. So God, whatever situation or place that we're in today, we thank you for your word. We thank you how it convicts us and challenges us, but it also inspires us and points us toward the one who is able to do abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think according to his power within us. 
And Lord God, as we meet today, we acknowledge that everything that we own and have is yours. And so we give back today of our tithes and offerings, asking that you would bless it and multiply it for your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.